Well, good evening. Hope you guys had a good afternoon, maybe got a nap, something good to eat, so you can look at some evidences tonight for the Bible's reliability, talking specifically about uh, it, the idea of the Bible's unity as we start out. <clears throat> this is uh, one, I think, of a two-part lesson. I, I think I'll be making it into a two-part lesson. We'll find out. I called the uh, sermon Evidences because I thought that was a little bit too long for a title to put on the marquee. Uh, so organic unity, we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about what I mean by organic unity as well. We'll also look at the unity of theme from Genesis to Revelation. The theme is the same. Unity of style for all the Bible writers. Unity between the Old and New Covenants. As some have said, the Old Covenant is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. They're united in all they do. And unity regarding the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So let's get started. And let's keep in mind, before we get started, the newest part of the Bible is over 1,900 years old. The oldest part goes back to Moses writing it up, that, that God gave it to him on Mount Sinai, gave him the law, but also the the Torah, what we call the Torah, the Pentateuch, and he wrote those probably about 1450 B.C., so that's about 3,450 years old. But the New Testament goes back to about 1,900 years ago. It was written over a period of about 1,500 years, and it was written by about 40 different men. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and the authors were from varied Cultures, varied backgrounds, different kinds of men in different situations. They were kings, prophets, shepherds, fishermen, farmers, uh, a physician, a tax collector. You, you know how that goes. These guys were in many ways so very much unlike each other except for their need for a savior. But the Holy Spirit used them all. Unity of theme. Redemption is what we're talking about as the theme. The plan for redemption in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, by the way, we're not going to look at a passage of scripture for each one of these, but, but this first one I do want us to look at, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, so we can get a feel for uh, what we're told about the, the ancientness of the plan itself for God's redemption of mankind. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, and he predestined us to, as, uh, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. All this was established before the foundation of of the world. Second Timothy 1 9, very similar to that. So we're looking at a, a theme of salvation, of redemption that was established before the world began. In other words, God did not create the world and Adam and Eve put them in the garden and then they sinned and he goes, Oh no, oh, I didn't see this coming. What are we going to do now? It wasn't like that at all. God knew it would happen. He had had a plan in place and this this is what uh, we read in the scriptures. Redemption was necessary. We see that from Genesis 3 to 11. Adam and Eve sin, of course. But then after they sin, sin is kind of adopted by all of humanity because we are all people of flesh. And it gets so bad 
by Genesis 6 that God says, I'm going to send a flood to wipe everybody out. And the only people that survived were Noah and his family, saved by the waters of the flood, as Peter would put it later, <clears throat> because it was the water that washed away all the sin of the world. Think about it like that. That's how he puts it. And then in chapter 11, of course, the Tower of Babel, people are, uh, even after the flood, so intent on doing things their own way that God has to scatter them over the face of the earth. So we get a handle very early on why redemption was necessary. And then Genesis through Malachi are preparations for redemption. Genesis 12, who were we introduced to in Genesis 12? Abraham. God calls Abraham, says, get up. I'm going to send you into a place uh, where your young people, your, your offspring are going to inherit this years ago or years in years to come. If I misspeak tonight, I gave a pint of blood today. So, you know, I'm, as somebody said, I think it was Lola, said, you're a pint low or what? Yeah, I'm a pint low. Anyway, Abraham, what did we read this morning from Galatians? But that once we're baptized into Christ, we put on Christ and we become children of Abraham because it's the same faith. His faith in God is what saved him, and our faith in God is what saves us. Faith. Faith is the victory, John would say. But that all comes to us all the way up through Malachi as we see Abraham have a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had 12 boys. They became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. That group of people went down into Egypt, about 75 strong, and they came out a nation, probably 3 million plus. And that nation conquered the land of Canaan. They established themselves as a nation. And then, I mean, you think about this plan for redemption, Genesis 12 through Malachi, and you, you look at the history and how it's uh, preserved. You've got uh, the nations of uh, ancient Babylon, because, because this is the nation that God created, but then half of that nation is taken away into captivity never to return. And then Judah, the part that's left, they're taken away into captivity by Babylon. And yet Daniel... In Babylon is getting this vision about the establishment of God's kingdom. And <laughs> it's crazy the way God works all this out. It's like he says, let me show you what I'm going to do with this. And then after uh, Babylonians is, is the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And you might wonder why in the world would he let all those people overwhelm the whole world like that when he's planning his kingdom? Well, what, what did the Persians do after Babylon? Well, Cyrus, king of Persia, was the one who sent the Jews back to reestablish their nation because Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years before that that the word of the Lord would flow forth from Jerusalem. And then after Isaiah, you see the Jews taken away from Jerusalem. And now Cyrus, king of Persia, sends them back and pays for the trip. And when the people who were there start complaining about the Jews rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem... They write to Cyrus, and Cyrus says, all right, you guys are going to pay for that with your taxes. So it's, it's great the way it all works out. And then, of course, the Greeks come after him, and what the Greeks do is establish a language that's a common language for the whole area, so everybody speaks Greek. How great would that be when you're trying to spread the gospel when everybody knows the same language to do that with? Koine Greek, common koine. Anyway, that's, that's just preparations from Genesis to Malachi. You, you can see how all that works out. That's the theme of redemption. And then the Gospels. We see redemption affected. The Son of God comes into the world, teaches the truth about the nature of God and reveals the nature of God in his own person and then dies, is buried, and is resurrected by his Father to bring about our salvation. 
That's what we read in the Gospels. And then we see the book of Acts, where that redemption is shared with the whole world. We see the apostles of Jesus Christ going out to tell this story of the gospel and bringing about salvation. And then we read in the epistles, you know what the epistles are? Those are the wives of the apostles. Remember that? Okay, that's one of my favorite Bible jokes. I thought that's pretty funny. Unless you've heard it 20 times. But I don't know. I've heard it 20 times. I still think it's funny. Anyway, that's where you read about all this redemption explained because we've got questions. Don't tell me you don't have questions about salvation. Even now, no matter how long you've been a Christian, I've still got questions. Don Furch and I, we go out to hunt together. We drive two hours one way, out and back. And this is what we're talking about the whole time. We're talking about the Bible and salvation and faith and how this works and sin. And what do we do about our own flesh and our temptations? And it's, it never ends. And so we've got this body of information to explain things to us and give us the comfort that we need and the reassurance that we need. And all that is in the epistles. And then, of course, we've got Revelation. It shows us we're going to have redemption in spite of opposition. At that time, the most powerful nation in the world. And the Revelation actually shows other nations combining with Rome to persecute God's people, persecute the church. And God shows us, doesn't matter, they're going down. Where's Rome today? The great nation of Rome. Where are they? They're a little bit of history. Where's the church? Well, here we are. Who would have ever expected? But that's the way it works. The unity of theme, with the theme being redemption. Unity of style. History is condensed. You've got so much information in the Bible, but if this were being written by guys who were guided only by their own desire to record events, it would be huge. It would be massive. You know it would be, but the Bible writers are amazingly brief. They condense things down. And they don't condense it by taking things out that are important. You know my favorite saying. I need one more verse. If Marty Kessler had all the one more verses that he wanted, we couldn't carry the Bible around. It's just more information. But it's not necessary. We've got everything we need right there. And there's no extra information. God's not saying, hey, it's be interesting for you to know what's going on in China. Yeah, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in South America back in? No, nothing like that. How about uh, information about medicine? Uh, nothing. Only accept the information we need about God's redemption plan. That's it. Restraint in recording amazing events. Where are the details about the immaculate conception? That, that's, that's not what the Bible calls it. That's what some folks call it. But Mary came to be with child through the Holy Spirit. How does that work? There's no attempt made to explain that. But duh, you go back to the first verse of the Bible. What's the first verse of the Bible say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the next five verses explain exactly how he did that. No, they don't. They just say what he did. He spoke, and this happened. He spoke, and this happened. You believe it or you don't. The alternative is science. What does science say? Well, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and billions of years, stuff happened and everything came to be by accident. And you can see by accident. You can think by accident. You can put thoughts together and speak by accident. No, that doesn't work. Well, it was aliens. Aliens came from some other world somewhere. No, it wasn't. Because it was aliens. Something had to happen to cause them to be. And supposedly they're even smarter than us. I don't know how difficult that would be. But 
We're talking about a, a book that gives us this information without any elaboration. It just says, this is what happened. And uh, I was listening to a guy not long ago. He was, a, uh, he was one who dealt in law enforcement. And he said, when I read the Bible, I was amazed because the Bible is what you would be reading if you were reading an honest witness telling you what happened. He said, you can tell when people are lying because they elaborate so much. They throw in so much extra material and they use a lot of adjectives to describe things vividly. He said, but when you're telling the truth, you don't do that. You just lay down the facts. You remember... Uh, Dragnet, the the TV series back in the 60s, who's old enough to remember Dragnet? What did they keep saying? Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Uh, that's all they wanted, and that's all God gives us, restraint. No physical descriptions of anybody unless that physical description somehow figured in what was being taught, what was being told. Uh, you, don't, you don't read about physical descriptions. Isn't that restraint? Why didn't any of the gospel writers say, this is what Jesus looked like? This is how tall he was. This is what color hair he had. This is what he wore from day to day. This is what he ate. None of that stuff. None of that stuff. Angels? Nothing. What did that pillar of fire sound like? Did it have a sound at all? So much information is left out. There's nothing that says when the Red Sea parted, people were standing by going, Wow, isn't that fantastic? Isn't that great? Oh, I've never seen anything like this before. Getting out your cameras and taking selfies with it. Oh, here's a rat. No, nothing like that. It says Moses parted the water. They went through on dry land. Criminy, that is brief. Anyway, that's, that's what you see in the Bible. All the way through, all the way through. The simplicity, the average person can read the Bible and understand it, especially the parts they really need to understand about salvation. It's not complicated. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Confess him. Repent of your sin. Let somebody bury you in, in, in baptism. That's, that's a simple plan. And all you have to do is read Acts. Seriously, you don't even have to read the Gospels. You read the book of Acts, you'll find out how to be saved in the first couple of chapters. It's, it's not complicated. However, it's such a deeply profound message that the smartest people among us can't figure it all out. Even Dayton Cassie had questions. That's the kind of book it is. Unity between the Old and New Covenants. The Old Testament points us to the New. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, the third chapter, not even to the end of the third chapter, but in the middle of the third chapter of Genesis, we're being pointed towards the future 4,000 years from that point in time when the Son of God would come. Pointing us to the new. That's what the Old Testament always does. Abraham's seed was to bless all nations. We're back to, to Genesis chapter 22. God told Abraham, you're going to have a son. You'll be 100 when it happens, but you'll have a son. I'm going to give you a son. Sarah, by the way, she'll be 90. But you're going to have a son. And that boy, from that boy, there's going to come a bunch of boys. And they are going to create a nation through which I'm going to bring my son into the world. Prophet like Moses is going to be raised up. This is what God gave Moses on the, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And that's what the people looked for. We read that in John this morning. Hey, talking about Jesus. Is he the prophet? Is he the one? They were looking for that prophet. The messenger is going to prepare the way. Isaiah, as well as Malachi, talked about uh, 
prepare way of the Lord, uh, prepare the way in the wilderness for the Lord. And, and that was, that was John the Baptist's job. A new covenant was going to be made. Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 said that. Now think about the, the boldness of a prophet of God to say, this covenant that we've got, I'm going to have a new one. This one's going to pass away because we haven't kept it. We're going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And it's going to be different. That's what I, or Jeremiah said. God's spirit's going to be poured out. What kind of a claim is that for Joel to make? But it happened. And we see that it happened. It's recorded that it happened. And the, uh, the witnesses say that it happened. God's kingdom's going to be established. This is Daniel chapter 2 and 7. Remember, Daniel was in captivity when he said this. The whole nation had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And Daniel get this, gets this dream. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar gets a dream, and he interprets that dream. And then it, uh, Daniel gets his own dream that says basically the same thing. Two different dreams, but the same message. And these dreams point to the establishment of the kingdom of God. But the Israelites are in captivity. So how's that going to work? Well, they're going to go back. Well, how are they going to get back? Well, the next king is going to pay for them to go back and rebuild the wall and rebuild Jerusalem. Oh, okay. Uh-oh. Yeah. Right. If you'd have been standing there with Daniel and somebody said that, you'd have gone, oh, right, that's never going to happen. Well, it did. It happened. It's history. The word of the Lord is going to go forth from Jerusalem. This is what Isaiah says. And that's exactly what's happened. So we've got all these things that uh, the, the old is pointing us to in the new. And then we come to the new and the new continually references the old. All those previous prophecies and a ton more. Uh, that was just a, basically the hem of the garment, as, as we say, that were spoken of there. And they were all fulfilled. Plus, here's just a few detailed ones. Jesus is our Passover. That goes all the way back to Exodus 12, the first Passover. And you know, it's supposed to be a lamb without blemish. And it was supposed to be roasted whole. And there was not going to be a bone broken of it. And it's blood would be the thing that would save people that night. That's what the Passover was all about, and Jesus is our Passover. His blood was offered for our atonement. Now, the Hebrew writer speaks of this in the context of the sacrifices that took place in the temple, but that blood harkens back to all the sacrifices since the days of Abel. You remember Abel offered a sacrifice of the flock. Blood sacrifice was the practice of God's people all the way up uh, until the coming of the Christ. And that's what the Hebrews writer uh, references there. The church as God's temple started out with a tabernacle, and then David built a temple. God allowed that, said, I didn't ask for one, but all right, I'll let you build one. But by the way, not you. We'll let Solomon build it. So Solomon built it, and now that temple is no more, but we are the temple, the living temple, the living stones. Kingdom of priests. Who could be a priest under the old law? Only the Levites and of the tribe of Levi, only those who were of the family of Aaron could be high priests. But you, if you are in Christ, you are a priest. You have that status. You have that position. You have that responsibility. But it all harkens back to the priesthood of old. Jesus being the high priest, of course, they had a high priest and we have a high priest. Their high priest changed all the time. Why? They died. Even the high priest died, and they had to put a new guy in office, but ours does not die. 
And, of course, God's expectations for man's moral behavior remain the same. Those have not changed. You still need to be honest. You still need to be courageous. You still need to treat people with justice and equity. You still need to be merciful. All of the things that God taught the people to be under the Old Covenant, he teaches us to be today. And there are literally hundreds of quotations of references and allusions to things having to do with the Old Covenant. Quotations, just, uh, this is kind of a fun challenge. Sometimes, not right now, sometime when you've got time, just open your Bible, your New Testament anywhere, and see how many quotations of the Old you'll find. And you'll probably find it just about every time you drop it open, you'll, you'll see a reference to the Old Testament. And if not a, a quote from the Old Testament, you'll see a reference to someone, like Elijah or Job. Or some character like that or some situation that took place. Like the, the Israelites coming through the sea like Paul talks about in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Or you'll see an allusion like Paul, uh, Peter rather talks about uh, sprinkling. He just mentioned sprinkling. And every Jewish person who would have heard that would have immediately known that was an allusion to the sacrifices. So references after references after references to the old you'll find in the new. And with specific regard to Jesus Christ. Micah said he would be born in Bethlehem. And he was to be preceded by a messenger. I know we talked about this earlier, but, but this is specifically regarding Christ. To be born of a virgin. To be born of the tribe of Judah and born of the family of Jesse. You remember uh, Jacob back in Genesis was blessing his sons, and he came to Judah, and he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And so we've got that reference to the, the royalty, the, the rulership, the authority, remaining with the tribe of Judah. And then, of course, the family of Jesse, through whom David was born. And then Zechariah talks about uh, the betrayal that would take place, and for a specific price. And what was that price? 30 pieces of silver. Have you never wondered, like I have wondered... Why did those in charge of hiring Judas not think to say, pay him anything but 30 pieces of silver? Because if we use 30 pieces of silver, they're going to say Zechariah is the one who, who gave that prophecy and, and we will have fulfilled it for them. Nobody said that. And so they did pay Judas 30 pieces of silver exactly like Zechariah said. And then why did none of them say, well, if he brings it back, let's be sure not to let him throw it in the temple because that's what Zechariah said would happen to it. And if he brings it back, let's be sure not to gather it up and buy a potter's field with it because that's what Zechariah said would happen. So these guys, the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, the ones who had him crucified are the very ones who fulfilled this prophecy that Zechariah gave by paying Judas 30 pieces of silver and then using the money as he returned it to buy a potter's field. It's just Staggers of the mind. Psalm 22. Jesus would be mocked. He would be ridiculed. He would be pierced through his hands and his feet. He would be stared at. And his garments would be gambled over. And this isn't everything that was said in the 22nd Psalm. But you read it for yourself. And you see how much of this just perfectly parallels what happened with Christ. By the way, when David wrote this, we have no record of any of this ever happening to David. And yet he describes it all perfectly 
as it happened to Jesus. It's amazing. And also, by the way, uh, crucifixion was first practiced by the Persians, and it was not practiced during the days of David. That was hundreds of years later. And so where in the world would David get this imagery unless he was being guided by the Holy Spirit to write these things down, especially since they apparently never happened to him, none of them. And then we've got Exodus. Made allusion to this a while ago. The Passover lamb, not a bone's going to be broken. And, and the thing about that is, Jesus was on the cross with those two criminals, remember? What happened to the criminals? Well, it was the Sabbath day. There's another thing, because this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't a Sabbath day. They just left them up there. Just hang on the cross all night. But it was a Sabbath, or it was coming towards the Sabbath day, rather. So it's getting on towards 6 o'clock when it would become the Sabbath. So we've got to get these guys down. What are we going to do? Well, these thieves are still alive, so break their legs. They broke their legs. They couldn't push themselves up to breathe anymore, and they suffocated, hanging there on the cross with broken legs. Came to Jesus. He was already dead. Why was he already dead? Because he had said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. And so on the cross, he cried out to his father with what kind of a voice? A loud voice, not a weak, whimpering, almost passed out voice, but a loud, strong voice. He cries out to his father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So when they came to him, they didn't need to break his legs. So this basic prophecy from Exodus 12 was fulfilled. But what they did do was pierce his side, which was also prophesied that would happen. He would be pierced. And so we've got all of these things fulfilled in Christ. And, of course, Amos says the sun's going to be going down at noon. Darkness. When? At the noon hour. Not because of clouds, because the secular writers who recorded the event said, you can see stars. Well, you can't see stars if there's clouds. How do you explain that? There's only one explanation. God. And, and this is what we see. So we've got all of this unity with regard to Jesus Christ, including the fact that he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah saw this 700 years before it happened. And he recorded it for us. By the way, all those things Isaiah was saying about the Messiah, how he would be rejected and abused, mistreated. Why would you write that about your Messiah if you're making it up? But if you're writing down what God is giving you as the truth that would come to pass, you just write it down that way and that's what happens. But if you're making it up, you wouldn't make up a, a Messiah. It's going to be rejected and abused. Buried in a rich man's tomb. How disgraceful is that? Well, he wrote it down because that was the truth and that's what happened. And then you've got the agreement of the gospel biographies. These stand as powerful testimony to the truth of their witness. You've got four guys writing about the same event, and you would expect somewhere along the line they're going to contradict. Now, they don't all say the same thing, but they don't say anything that contradicts the others. How does that happen? How do you get 40 guys over 1,500 years to put together something that is so unified in its theme and its purpose and its style? Everything about the Bible, it just tells us that it's from God. If this isn't enough evidence to show us that the Bible is trustworthy, what more do we need? And there's more. This, this is just a little bit what we've seen tonight.
but I wanted to show you these things. Uh, I thought this is worthy of thinking about because we, we live in a time when the Bible is being attacked, Christianity is being attacked. And if you know things about the Bible as well as knowing the content of the Bible, then you'll have uh, a greater, stronger foundation, I think, for your faith. So let's keep our heads in the book and our hearts in the Lord, and we will do well. That is the lesson for tonight. I don't know that there's anybody here who needs to respond to the gospel, but uh, it's pretty simple. Put your faith in Jesus, repent of your sin, confess him, let somebody bury in the water. We got water. Yeah, we got water. We're ready for you. If you're ready for the Lord, we're ready for you. And if you need prayers, anything you need, we're going to stand and sing a song we call an invitation song for you. So we're inviting you to come and let us know how we can help. And that's what we'll do right now. Bob?